This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. Recording by Matt Saw. The Mathematics of a Dream In the midst of the consternation his revelation had produced, Ernest began again to speak. You have said, a dozen of you tonight, that socialism is impossible. You have asserted the impossible. Now let me demonstrate the inevitable. Not only is it inevitable that you small capitalists shall pass away, but it is inevitable that the large capitalists and the trusts also shall pass away. Remember, the tide of evolution never flows backward. It flows on and on, and it flows from competition to combination, and from little combination to large combination, and from large combination to colossal combination, and it flows on to socialism, which is the most colossal combination of all. You tell me that I dream. Very good. I'll give you the mathematics of my dream. 
And here in advance I challenge you to show that my mathematics are wrong. I shall develop the inevitability of the breakdown of the capitalist system, and I shall demonstrate mathematically why it must break down. Here goes, and bear with me if at first I seem irrelevant. Let us, first of all, investigate a particular industrial process, and whenever I state something with which you disagree, please interrupt me. Here is a shoe factory. This factory takes leather and makes it into shoes. Here is $100 worth of leather. It goes through the factory and comes out in the form of shoes, worth, let us say, $200. What has happened? $100 has been added to the value of the leather. How was it added? Let us see. Capital and labor added this value of $100. Capital furnished the factory, the machines, and paid all the expenses. Labor furnished labor. By the joint effort of capital and labor, $100 of value was added. Are you all agreed so far? Heads nodded around the table in affirmation. Labor and capital have produced this $100. Now proceed to divide it. The statistics of this division are fractional, so let us, for the sake of convenience, make them roughly approximate. Capital takes $50 as its share, and labor gets in wages $50 as its share. We will not enter into the squabbling over the division. Note, Everhard here clearly develops the cause of all the labor troubles of that time. In the division of the joint product, capital wanted all it could get, and labor wanted all it could get. This quarrel over the division was irreconcilable. So long as the system of capitalistic production existed, labor and capital continued to quarrel over the division of the joint product. It is a ludicrous spectacle to us, but we must not forget that we have seven centuries' advantage over those that lived in that time. No matter how much squabbling takes place, in one percentage or another the division is arranged. And take notice here that what is true of this particular industrial process is true of all industrial processes. Am I right? Again, the whole table agreed with Ernest. Now, suppose labor, having received his $50, wants to buy back shoes. It could only buy back $50 worth. That's clear, isn't it? And now we shift from this particular process to the sum total of all industrial processes in the United States, which includes the leather itself, raw material, transportation, selling, everything. We will say, for the sake of round figures, that the total production of wealth in the United States in one year is $4 billion. Then labor has received in wages during the same period $2 billion. $4 billion has been produced. How much of this can labor buy back? Two billions. There is no discussion of this, I'm sure. For that matter, my percentages are mild. Because of a thousand capitalistic devices, labor cannot buy back even half of the total product. But to return, we will say labor buys back two billions. Then it stands to reason that labor can consume only two billions. There are still two billions to be accounted for, which labor cannot buy back and consume. Labor does not consume its two billions, even. Mr. Kowalt spoke up. If it did, it would not have any deposits in the savings banks. Labor's deposits in the savings banks are only a sort of reserve fund that is consumed as fast as it accumulates. These deposits are saved for old age, for sickness and accident, and for funeral expenses. The savings bank deposit is simply a piece of the loaf put back on the shelf to be eaten next day. No, labor consumes all of the total product that its wages will buy back. Two billions are left to capital. After it has paid its expenses, does it consume the remainder? Does capital consume all of its two billions? Ernest stopped and put the question point-blank to a number of the men. They shook their heads. I don't know, one of them frankly said. Of course you do, Ernest went on. Stop and think a moment. If capital consumed its share, the sum total of capital could not increase. It would remain constant. 
If you will look at the economic history of the United States, you will see that the sum total of capital has continually increased. Therefore, capital does not consume its share. Do you remember when England owned so much of our railroad bonds? As the years went by, we bought back those bonds. What does that mean? That part of capital's unconsumed share bought back the bonds. What is the meaning of the fact that today the capitalists of the United States own hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of Mexican bonds, Russian bonds, Italian bonds, Grecian bonds? The meaning is that those hundreds and hundreds of millions were part of capital's share, which capital did not consume. Furthermore, from the very beginning of the capitalist system, capital has never consumed all of its share. And now we come to the point. Four billion dollars of wealth is produced in one year in the United States. Labor buys back and consumes two billions. Capital does not consume the remaining two billions. There is a large balance left over unconsumed. What is done with this balance? What can be done with it? Labor cannot consume any of it, for labor has already spent all its wages. Capital will not consume this balance because already, according to its nature, it has consumed all it can. And still remains the balance. What can be done with it? What is done with it? It is sold abroad, Mr. Kowalt volunteered. The very thing, Ernest agreed. Because of this balance arises our need for a foreign market. This is sold abroad. It has to be sold abroad. There is no other way of getting rid of it. And that unconsumed surplus, sold abroad, becomes what we call our favorable balance of trade. Are we all agreed so far? Surely it is a waste of time to elaborate these ABCs of commerce, Mr. Calvin said tartly. We all understand them. And it is by these ABCs I have so carefully elaborated that I shall confound you, Ernest retorted. There's the beauty of it, and I'm going to confound you with them right now. Here goes. The United States is a capitalist country that has developed its resources. According to its capitalist system of industry, it has an unconsumed surplus that must be got rid of, and that must be got rid of abroad. Note. Theodore Roosevelt, President of the United States a few years prior to this time, made the following public declaration. A more liberal and extensive reciprocity in the purchase and sale of commodities is necessary so that the overproduction of the United States can be satisfactorily disposed of to foreign countries. Of course, this overproduction he mentions was the profits of the capitalist system over and beyond the consuming power of the capitalists. It was at this time that Senator Mark Hanna said, The production of wealth in the United States is one-third larger annually than its consumption. Also a fellow senator, Chauncey Depew, said, The American people produce annually two billions more wealth than they consume. What is true of the United States is true of every other capitalist country with developed resources. Every one of such countries has an unconsumed surplus. Don't forget that they have already traded with one another and that these surpluses yet remain. Labor in all these countries has spent its wages and cannot buy any of the surpluses. Capital in all these countries has already consumed all it is able according to its nature, and still remain the surpluses. They cannot dispose of these surpluses to one another. How are they going to get rid of them? Sell them to countries with undeveloped resources, Mr. Cobalt suggested. The very thing. You see, my argument is so clear and simple that in your own minds you carry it on for me. And now for the next step. Suppose the United States disposes of its surplus to a country with undeveloped resources like, say, Brazil. Remember, this surplus is over and above trade, which articles of trade have been consumed. What then does the United States get in return from Brazil? Gold, said Mr. Cobalt. 
But there is only so much gold and not much of it in the world, Ernest objected. Gold in the form of securities and bonds and so forth, Mr. Cowalt amended. Now you've struck it, Ernest said. From Brazil, the United States, in return for her surplus, gets bonds and securities. And what does that mean? It means that the United States is coming to own railroads in Brazil, factories, mines, and lands in Brazil. And what is the meaning of that, in turn? Mr. Cowalt pondered and shook his head. I'll tell you, Ernest continued. It means that the resources of Brazil are being developed. And now the next point. When Brazil, under the capitalist system, has developed her resources, she will herself have an unconsumed surplus. Can she get rid of this surplus to the United States? No, because the United States has herself a surplus. Can the United States do what she previously did, and get rid of her surplus to Brazil? No, for Brazil now has a surplus too. What happens? The United States and Brazil must both seek out other countries with undeveloped resources in order to unload the surpluses on them. But by the very process of unloading the surpluses, the resources of those countries are in turn developed. Soon they have surpluses and are seeking other countries on which to unload. Now, gentlemen, follow me. The planet is only so large. There are only so many countries in the world. What will happen when every country in the world, down to the smallest and last, with a surplus in its hands, stands confronting every other country with surpluses in their hands? He paused and regarded his listeners. The bepuzzlement in their faces was delicious. Also, there was awe in their faces. Out of abstractions, Ernest had conjured a vision and made them see it. They were seeing it then, as they sat there, and they were frightened by it. We started with ABC, Mr. Calvin, Ernest said slyly. I have now given you the rest of the alphabet. It is very simple. That is the beauty of it. You surely have the answer forthcoming. What then, when every country in the world has an unconsumed surplus? Where will your capitalist system be then? But Mr. Calvin shook a troubled head. He was obviously questing back through Ernest's reasoning in search of an error. Let me briefly go over the ground with you again. Ernest said. We began with a particular industrial process, the shoe factory. We found that the division of the joint product that took place there was similar to the division that took place in the sum total of all industrial processes. We found that labor could buy back with its wages only so much of the product, and that capital did not consume all of the remainder of the product. We found that when labor had consumed to the full extent of its wages, and when capital had consumed all it wanted, there was still left an unconsumed surplus. We agreed that this surplus could only be disposed of abroad, we agreed also that the effect of unloading the surplus on another country would be to develop the resources of that country, and that in a short time that country would have an unconsumed surplus. We extended this process to all the countries on the planet, till every country was producing every year and every day an unconsumed surplus, which it could dispose of to no other country. And now I ask you again, what are we going to do with those surpluses? Still no one answered. Mr. Calvin? Ernest queried. Oh, it beats me, Mr. Calvin confessed. I never dreamed of such a thing, Mr. Asmundson said, and yet it does seem clear as print. It was the first time I had ever heard Karl Marx's doctrine of surplus values elaborated, and Ernest had done it so simply that I too sat puzzled and dumbfounded. Note. Karl Marx, the great intellectual hero of socialism, a German Jew of the 19th century, a contemporary of John Stuart Mill. 
It seems incredible to us that whole generations should have elapsed after the enunciation of Marx's economic discoveries, in which time he was sneered at by the world's accepted thinkers and scholars. Because of his discoveries, he was banished from his native country, and he died in exile in England. I'll tell you a way to get rid of the surplus, Ernest said. Throw it into the sea. Throw every year hundreds of millions of dollars worth of shoes and wheat and clothing and all the commodities of commerce into the sea. Will that fix it? Well, it'll certainly fix it, Mr. Calvin answered, but it is absurd for you to talk that way. Ernest was upon him like a flash. Is it a bit more absurd than what you advocate, you machine-breaker, returning to the antediluvian ways of your forefathers? What do you propose in order to get rid of the surplus? You would escape the problem of the surplus by not producing any surplus. And how do you propose to avoid producing a surplus? By returning to a primitive method of production, so confused and disorderly and irrational, so wasteful and costly, that it will be impossible to produce a surplus. Mr. Calvin swallowed. The point had been driven home. He swallowed again and cleared his throat. You are right, he said. I, I stand convicted. It is absurd, but we've got to do something. It is a case of life and death for us of the middle class. We refuse to perish. We elect to be absurd and to return to the truly crude and wasteful methods of our forefathers. We will put back industry to its pre-trust stage. We will break the machines. And what are you going to do about it? But you can't break the machines, Ernest replied. You cannot make the tide of evolution flow backward. Opposed to you are two great forces, each of which is more powerful than you of the middle class. The large capitalists, the trusts, in short, will not let you turn back. They don't want the machines destroyed. And greater than the trusts and more powerful is labor. It will not let you destroy the machines. The ownership of the world along with the machines lies between the trusts and labor. That is the battle alignment. Neither side wants the destruction of the machines, but each side wants to possess the machines. In this battle, the middle class has no place. The middle class is a pygmy between two giants. Don't you see, you poor perishing middle class? You are caught between the upper and nether millstones, and even now has the grinding begun. I have demonstrated to you mathematically the inevitable breakdown of the capitalist system. When every country stands with an unconsumed and unsaleable surplus on its hands, the capitalist system will break down under the terrific structure of profits that it itself has reared. And in that day there won't be any destruction of the machines. The struggle then will be for the ownership of the machines. If labor wins, your way will be easy. The United States and the whole world, for that matter, will enter upon a new and tremendous era. Instead of being crushed by the machines, life will be made fairer and happier and nobler by them. You of the destroyed middle class, along with labor, there will be nothing but labor then. So you and all the rest of labor will participate in the equitable distribution of the products of the wonderful machines. And we, all of us, will make new and more wonderful machines. And there won't be any unconsumed surplus, because there won't be any profits. But suppose the trusts win in this battle over the ownership of the machines and the world, Mr. Cobalt asked. Then, Ernest answered, you and labor and all of us will be crushed under the iron heel of a despotism as relentless and terrible as any despotism that has blackened the pages of the history of man. That will be a good name for that despotism, the Iron Heel. Note, the earliest known use of that name to designate the oligarchy. There was a long pause. 
and every man at the table meditated in ways unwanted and profound. But this socialism of yours is a dream, Mr. Calvin said, and repeated, a dream. I'll show you something that isn't a dream, then, Ernest answered, and that's something I shall call the oligarchy. You call it the plutocracy. We both mean the same thing, the large capitalists or the trusts. Let us see where the power lies today. And in order to do so, let us apportion society into its class divisions. There are three big classes in society. First comes the plutocracy, which is composed of wealthy bankers, railway magnates, corporation directors, and trust magnates. Second is the middle class, your class, gentlemen, which is composed of farmers, merchants, small manufacturers, and professional men. And third and last comes my class, the proletariat, which is composed of the wage workers. Note, this division of society made by Everhard is in accordance with that made by Lucien Saniel, one of the statistical authorities of that time. His calculation of the membership of these divisions by occupation from the United States Census of 1900 is as follows. Plutocratic class, 250,251. Middle class, 8,429,845. And proletariat class, 20,393,137. You cannot but grant that the ownership of wealth constitutes a central power in the United States today. How is this wealth owned by these three classes? Here are the figures. The plutocracy owns 67 billions of wealth. Of the total number of persons engaged in occupations in the United States, only nine-tenths of one percent are from the plutocracy. Yet the plutocracy owns 70% of the total wealth. The middle class owns 24 billions. 29% of those in occupations are from the middle class, and they own 25% of the total wealth remains the proletariat. It owns four billions. Of all persons in occupations, 70% come from the proletariat, and the proletariat owns 4% of the total wealth. Where does the power lie, gentlemen? Well, from your own figures, we of the middle class are more powerful than labor, Mr. Asmundson remarked. Calling us weak does not make you stronger in the face of the strength of the plutocracy, Ernest retorted. And furthermore, I'm not done with you. There is a greater strength than wealth, and it is greater because it cannot be taken away. Our strength, the strength of the proletariat, is in our muscles, in our hands to cast ballots, in our fingers to pull triggers. The strength we cannot be stripped of. It is the primitive strength. It is the strength that is to life germane. It is the strength that is stronger than wealth, and that wealth cannot take away. But your strength is detachable. It can be taken away from you. Even now, the plutocracy is taking it away from you. In the end, it will take it all away from you. And then you will cease to be the middle class. You will descend to us. You will become proletarians. And the beauty of it is that you will then add to our strength. We will hail you, brothers, and we will fight shoulder to shoulder in the cause of humanity. You see, labor has nothing concrete of which to be despoiled. Its share of the wealth of the country consists of clothes and household furniture, with here and there, in very rare cases, an unencumbered home. But you have the concrete wealth, 24 billions of it, and the plutocracy will take it away from you. Of course, there is the large likelihood that the proletariat will take it away first. Don't you see your position, gentlemen? The middle class is a wobbly little lamb between a lion and a tiger. If one doesn't get you, the other will. And if the plutocracy gets you first, why, it's only a matter of time when the proletariat gets the plutocracy. Even your present wealth is not a true measure of your power. The strength of your wealth at this moment is only an empty shell. 
That is why you are crying out your feeble little battle cry. Return to the ways of our fathers. You are aware of your impotency. You know that your strength is an empty shell. And I'll show you the emptiness of it. What power have the farmers? Over 50% are thralls by virtue of the fact that they are merely tenants or are mortgaged. And all of them are thralls by virtue of the fact that the trusts already own or control, which is the same thing, only better, own and control all the means of marketing the crops, such as cold storage, railroads, elevators, and steamship lines. And furthermore, the trusts control the markets. In all this, the farmers are without power. As regards their political and governmental power, I'll take that up later, along with the political and governmental power of the whole middle class. Day by day, the trusts squeeze out the farmers as they squeezed out Mr. Calvin and the rest of the dairymen. And day by day, are the merchants squeezed out in the same way. Do you remember how, in six months, the tobacco trust squeezed out over 400 cigar stores in New York City alone? Where are the old-time owners of the coal fields? You know today, without my telling you, that the railroad trust owns or controls the entire anthracite and bituminous coal fields. Does the Standard Oil Trust own a score of the ocean lines? Note. Standard Oil and Rockefeller. See upcoming footnote. Rockefeller began as a member. And does it not also control copper, to say nothing of running a smelter trust as a little side enterprise? There are 10,000 cities in the United States tonight lighted by the companies owned or controlled by Standard Oil. And in as many cities, all the electric transportation, urban, suburban, and interurban, is in the hands of Standard Oil. The small capitalists who were in these thousands of enterprises are gone. You know that. It's the same way that you are going. The small manufacturer is like the farmer, and small manufacturers and farmers today are reduced to all intents and purposes to feudal tenure. For that matter, the professional men and the artists are at this present moment villains in everything but name, while the politicians are henchmen. Why do you, Mr. Calvin, work all your nights and days to organize the farmers, along with the rest of the middle class, into a new political party? because the politicians of the old parties will have nothing to do with your atavistic ideas. And with your atavistic ideas, they will have nothing to do, because they are what I said they are, henchmen, retainers of the plutocracy. I spoke of the professional men and the artists as villains. What else are they? One and all, the professors, the preachers, and the editors, hold their jobs by serving the plutocracy, and their service consists of propagating only such ideas as are either harmless to or commendatory of the plutocracy. Whenever they propagate ideas that menace the plutocracy, they lose their jobs. In which case, if they have not provided for the rainy day, they descend into the proletariat and either perish or become working-class agitators. And don't forget that it is the press, the pulpit, and the university that mould public opinion, set the thought pace of the nation. As for the artists, they merely pander to the little less than ignoble taste of the plutocracy. But after all, wealth in itself is not the real power. It is the means to power, and power is governmental. Who controls the government today? The proletariat, with its 20 millions engaged in occupations? Even you laugh at the idea. Does the middle class, with its 8 million occupied members? No more than the proletariat. Who, then, controls the government? The plutocracy, with its paltry quarter of a million of occupied members. But this quarter of a million does not control the government, though it renders yeoman service. It is the brain of the plutocracy that controls the government, and this brain consists of seven small and powerful groups of men. And do not forget that these groups are working today practically in unison. Note. Even as late as 1907, it was considered that 11 groups dominated the country, but this number was reduced by the amalgamation of the five railroad groups into a supreme combination of all the railroads. 
These five groups so amalgamated, along with their financial and political allies, were 1. James J. Hill with his control of the Northwest, 2. The Pennsylvania Railway Group, Schiff financial manager with big banking firms of Philadelphia and New York, 3. Harriman with Frick for counsel and Odell as political lieutenant, controlling the Central Continental, Southwestern and Southern Pacific coastlines of transportation, 4. The Gould family railway interests, and 5. More Reed and Leeds, known as the Rock Island crowd. These strong oligarchs rose out of the conflict of competition and traveled the inevitable road toward combination. Let me point out the power of but one of them, the Railroad Group. It employs 40,000 lawyers to defeat the people in the courts. It issues countless thousands of free passes to judges, bankers, editors, ministers, university men, members of state legislatures and of Congress. It maintains luxurious lobbies at every state capital and at the national capital. And in all the cities and towns of the land, it employs an immense army of pettifoggers and small politicians whose business is to attend primaries, pack conventions, get on juries, bribe judges, and in every way to work for its interests. Note. Lobby. A peculiar institution for bribing, bulldozing, and corrupting the legislatures who were supposed to represent the people's interests. Note. A decade before the speech of Everhards, the New York Board of Trade issued a report from which the following is quoted. The railroads control absolutely the legislatures of a majority of the states of the Union. They make and unmake United States senators, congressmen, and governors, and are practically dictators of the governmental policy of the United States. Gentlemen, I have merely sketched the power of one of the seven groups that constitute the brain of the plutocracy. Your 24 billions of wealth does not give you 25 cents worth of governmental power. It is an empty shell, and soon even the empty shell will be taken away from you. The plutocracy has all power in its hands today. It today makes the laws, for it owns the Senate, Congress, the courts, and the state legislatures. And not only that, behind law must be forced to execute the law. Today the plutocracy makes the law, and to enforce the law it has at its beck and call the police, the army, the navy, and lastly the militia, which is you and me and all of us. Note. Rockefeller began as a member of the proletariat, and through thrift and cunning succeeded in developing the first perfect trust, namely that known as Standard Oil. We cannot forbear giving the following remarkable page from the history of the times to show how the need for reinvestment of the Standard Oil surplus crushed out small capitalists and hastened the breakdown of the capitalist system. David Graham Phillips was a radical writer of the period, and the quotation by him is taken from a copy of the Saturday Evening Post dated October the 4th, 1902 A.D., this is the only copy of this publication that has come down to us, and yet, from its appearance and content, we cannot but conclude that it was one of the popular periodicals with a large circulation. The quotation here follows. About ten years ago, Rockefeller's income was given as 30 millions by an excellent authority. He had reached the limit of profitable investment of profits in the oil industry. Here, then, were these enormous sums in cash pouring in, more than $2 million a month for John Davis and Rockefeller alone. The problem of reinvestment became more serious. It became a nightmare. The oil income was swelling, swelling, and the number of sound investments limited, even more limited than it is now. It was through no special eagerness for more gains that the Rockefellers began to branch out from oil into other things. They were forced, swept on by this inrolling tide of wealth which their monopoly magnet irresistibly attracted. They developed a staff of investment seekers and investigators. It is said that the chief of this staff has a salary of $125,000 a year. The first conspicuous excursion and incursion of the Rockefellers was into the railway field. By 1895, they controlled one-fifth of the railway mileage of the country. What do they own, or through dominant ownership, control today? 
They are powerful in all the great railways of New York, North, East, and West, except one, where their share is only a few millions. They are in most of the great railways radiating from Chicago. They dominate in several of the systems that extend to the Pacific. It is their votes that make Mr. Morgan so potent, though, it may be added, they need his brains more than he needs their votes. At present, and the combination of the two constitutes in large measure the community of interest. But railways could not alone absorb rapidly enough those mighty floods of gold. Presently, John D. Rockefeller's two and a half million dollars a month had increased to four, to five, to six millions a month, to seventy-five millions a year. Illuminating oil was becoming all profit. The reinvestments of income were adding their might of many annual millions. The Rockefellers went into gas and electricity when those industries had developed the safe investment stage. And now a large part of the American people must begin to enrich the Rockefellers as soon as the sun goes down, no matter what form of illuminant they use. They went into farm mortgages. It is said that when prosperity a few years ago enabled the farmers to rid themselves of their mortgages, John D. Rockefeller was moved almost to tears. Eight millions which he had thought taken care of for years to come at a good interest was suddenly dumped upon his doorstep, and there set up a squawking for a new home. This unexpected addition to his worriments in finding places for the progeny of his petroleum and their progeny and their progeny's progeny was too much for the equanimity of a man without a digestion. The Rockefellers went into mines, iron and coal and copper and lead, into other industrial companies, into street railways, into national, state and municipal bonds, into steamships and steamboats and telegraphy, into real estate, into skyscrapers and residences and hotels and business blocks, into life insurance, into banking. There was soon literally no field of industry where their millions were not at work. The Rockefeller Bank, the National City Bank, is by itself far and away the biggest bank in the United States. It is exceeded in the world only by the Bank of England and the Bank of France. The deposits average more than 100 millions a day, and it dominates the call loan market on Wall Street and the stock market. But it is not alone. It is the head of the Rockefeller chain of banks, which includes 14 banks and trust companies in New York City, and banks of great strength and influence in every large money center in the country. John D. Rockefeller owned Standard Oil stock worth between four and five hundred millions at the market quotations. He has a hundred millions in the Steel Trust, almost as much in a single Western railway system, half as much in a second, and so on and on and on until the mind wearies of the cataloging. His income last year was about one hundred million dollars. It is doubtful if the incomes of all the Rothschilds together make a greater sum, and it is going up by leaps and bounds. Little discussion took place after this, and the dinner soon broke up. All were quiet and subdued, and leave-taking was done with low voices. It seemed almost that they were scared by the vision of the times they had seen. "'The situation is indeed serious,' Mr. Calvin said to Ernest. "'I have little quarrel with the way you have depicted it. Only I disagree with you about the doom of the middle class. We shall survive, and we shall overthrow the trusts.' "'And return to the ways of your fathers,' Ernest finished for him. Even so, Mr. Calvin answered gravely, I know it's a sort of machine-breaking, and that it is absurd, but then life seems absurd today. What of the machinations of the plutocracy? And at any rate, our sort of machine-breaking is at least practical and possible, which your dream is not. Your socialistic dream is, well, a dream. We cannot follow you. I only wish you fellows knew a little something about evolution and sociology, Ernest said wistfully, as they shook hands. We would be saved so much trouble if you did. End of chapter 9 Recording by Matt Saw Montreal MattSaw.org Recording by Matt Saw
The Vortex. Following like thunderclaps upon the businessmen's dinner occurred event after event of terrifying moment. And I, little I, who had lived so placidly all my days in the quiet university town, found myself and my personal affairs drawn into the vortex of the great world affairs. Whether it was my love for Ernest, or the clear sight he had given me of the society in which I lived, that made me a revolutionist, I know not. But a revolutionist I became. And I was plunged into a whirl of happenings that would have been inconceivable three short months before. The crisis in my own fortunes came simultaneously with great crises in society. First of all, father was discharged from the university. Oh, he was not technically discharged. His resignation was demanded. That was all. This in itself did not amount to much. Father, in fact, was delighted. He was especially delighted because his discharge had been precipitated by the publication of his book, Economics and Education. It clinched his argument, he contended. What better evidence could be advanced to prove that education was dominated by the capitalist class? But this proof never got anywhere. Nobody knew he had been forced to resign from the university. He was so eminent a scientist that such an announcement, coupled with the reason for his enforced resignation, would have created somewhat of a furor all over the world. The newspapers showered him with praise and honor, and commended him for having given up the drudgery of the lecture room in order to devote his whole time to scientific research. At first, father laughed. Then he became angry, tonic angry. Then came the suppression of his book. This suppression was performed secretly, so secretly that at first we could not comprehend. The publication of the book had immediately caused a bit of excitement in the country. Father had been politely abused in the capitalist press, the tone of the abuse being to the effect that it was a pity so great a scientist should leave his field and invade the realm of sociology, about which he knew nothing and wherein he had promptly become lost. This lasted for a week, while father chuckled and said the book had touched a sore spot on capitalism. And then, abruptly, the newspapers and the critical magazines ceased saying anything about the book at all. Also, and with equal sadness, the book disappeared from the market. Not a copy was obtainable from any bookseller. Father wrote to the publishers and was informed that the plates had been accidentally injured. An unsatisfactory correspondence followed. Driven finally to an unequivocal stand, the publishers stated that they could not see their way to putting the book into type again, but that they were willing to relinquish their rights in it. And you won't find another publishing house in the country to touch it, Ernest said. And if I were you, I'd hunt cover right now. You've merely got a foretaste of the iron heel. But father was nothing if not a scientist. He never believed in jumping to conclusions. A laboratory experiment was no experiment if it were not carried through in all its details. So he patiently went the round of the publishing houses. They gave a multitude of excuses, but not one house would consider the book. When father became convinced that the book had actually been suppressed, he tried to get the fact into the newspapers, but his communications were ignored. At a political meeting of the socialists, where many reporters were present, father saw his chance. He arose and related the history of the suppression of the book. He laughed next day when he read the newspapers, and then he grew angry to a degree that eliminated all tonic qualities. The papers made no mention of the book, but they misreported him beautifully. They twisted his words and phrases away from the context and turned his subdued and controlled remarks into a howling anarchistic speech. It was done artfully. One instance in particular I remember. He had used the phrase, social revolution. The reporter merely dropped out social. This was sent out all over the country in an Associated Press dispatch, and from all over the country arose a cry of alarm. Father was branded as a nihilist and an anarchist. 
and in one cartoon that was copied widely, he was portrayed waving a red flag at the head of a mob of long-haired, wild-eyed men who bore in their hands torches, knives, and dynamite bombs. He was assailed terribly in the press, in long and abusive editorials, for his anarchy, and hints were made of mental breakdown on his part. This behavior on the part of the capitalist press was nothing new, Ernest told us. It was the custom, he said, to send reporters to all the socialist meetings for the express purpose of misreporting and distorting what was said, in order to frighten the middle class away from any possible affiliation with the proletariat. And repeatedly, Ernest warned father to cease fighting and to take to cover. The socialist press of the country took up the fight, however, and throughout the reading portion of the working class it was known that the book had been suppressed. But this knowledge stopped with the working class. Next, the Appeal to Reason, a big socialist publishing house, arranged with father to bring out the book. Father was jubilant, but Ernest was alarmed. I'll tell you we are on the verge of the unknown, he insisted. Big things are happening secretly all around us. We can feel them. We do not know what they are, but they are there. The whole fabric of society is a tremble with them. Don't ask me. I don't know myself. But out of this flux of society, something is about to crystallize. It is crystallizing now. The suppression of the book is a precipitation. How many books have been suppressed? We haven't the least idea. We are in the dark. We have no way of learning. Watch out next for the suppression of the socialist press and socialist publishing houses. I'm afraid it's coming. We are going to be throttled. Ernest had his hand on the pulse of events even more closely than the rest of the socialists, and within two days the first blow was struck. The appeal to reason was a weekly, and its regular circulation among the proletariat was 750,000. Also, it very frequently got out special editions of from two to five millions. These great editions were paid for and distributed by the small army of voluntary workers who had marshaled around the appeal. The first blow was aimed at these special editions, and it was a crushing one. By an arbitrary ruling of the post office, these editions were decided to be not the regular circulation of the paper, and for that reason were denied admission to the mails. A week later, the post office department ruled that the paper was seditious and barred it entirely from the mails. This was a fearful blow to the socialist propaganda. The appeal was desperate. It devised a plan of reaching its subscribers through the express companies, but they declined to handle it. This was the end of the appeal, but not quite. It prepared to go on with its book publishing. Twenty thousand copies of Father's book were in the bindery, and the presses were turning off more. And then, without warning, a mob arose one night, and, under a waving American flag, singing patriotic songs, set fire to the great plant of the appeal, and totally destroyed it. Now, Girard, Kansas, was a quiet, peaceable town. There had never been any labor troubles there. The appeal paid union wages and, in fact, was the backbone of the town, giving employment to hundreds of men and women. It was not the citizens of Girard that composed the mob. This mob had risen up out of the earth, apparently, and to all intents and purposes, its work done, it had gone back into the earth. Ernest saw in the affair the most sinister import. The black hundreds are being organized in the United States, he said. This is the beginning. There will be more of it. The Iron Heel is getting bold. Note. The Black Hundreds were reactionary mobs organized by the perishing autocracy in the Russian Revolution. These reactionary groups attacked the revolutionary groups, and also at needed moments rioted and destroyed property, so as to afford the autocracy the pretext of calling out the Cossacks. 
and so perished father's book. We were to see much of the Black Hundreds as the days went by. Week by week, more of the socialist papers were barred from the mails, and in a number of instances the Black Hundreds destroyed the socialist presses. Of course, the newspapers of the land lived up to the reactionary policy of the ruling class, and the destroyed socialist press was misrepresented and vilified, while the Black Hundreds were represented as true patriots and saviors of society. So convincing was all this misrepresentation that even sincere ministers in the pulpit praised the Black Hundreds while regretting the necessity of violence. History was making fast. The fall elections were soon to occur, and Ernest was nominated by the Socialist Party to run for Congress. His chance for election was most favorable. The streetcar strike in San Francisco had been broken, and following upon it, the Teamsters' strike had been broken. These two defeats had been very disastrous to organized labor. The whole Waterfront Federation, along with its allies in the structural trades, had backed up the Teamsters, and all had smashed down ingloriously. It had been a bloody strike. The police had broken countless heads with their riot clubs, and the death list had been augmented by the turning loose of a machine gun on the strikers from the barns of the Marsden Special Delivery Company. In consequence, the men were sullen and vindictive. They wanted blood and revenge. Beaten on their chosen field, they were ripe to seek revenge by means of political action. They still maintained their labor organization, and this gave them strength in the political struggle that was on. Ernest's chance for election grew stronger and stronger. Day by day, unions and more unions voted their support to the socialists, until even Ernest laughed when the undertaker's assistants and the chicken pickers fell into line. Labor became mulish. While it packed the socialist meetings with mad enthusiasm, it was impervious to the wiles of the old party politicians. The old party orators were usually greeted with empty halls, though occasionally they encountered full halls, where they were so roughly handled that more than once it was necessary to call out the police reserves. History was making fast. The air was vibrant with things happening and impending. The country was on the verge of hard times, caused by a series of prosperous years wherein the difficulty of disposing abroad of the unconsumed surplus had become increasingly difficult. Industries were working short time, many great factories were standing idle against the time when the surplus should be gone, and wages were being cut right and left. Note. Under the capitalist regime, these periods of hard times were as inevitable as they were absurd. Prosperity always brought calamity. This, of course, was due to the excess of unconsumed profits that was piled up. Also, the great machinist strike had been broken. 200,000 machinists, along with their 500,000 allies in the metalworking trades, had been defeated in as bloody a strike as had ever marred the United States. Pitched battles had been fought with the small armies of army strikebreakers put in the field by the employers' associations. The black hundreds, appearing in scores of wide-scattered places, had destroyed property, and in consequence, a 100,000 regular soldiers of the United States had been called out to put a frightful end to the whole affair. A number of the labor leaders had been executed, many others had been sentenced to prison, while thousands of the rank and file of the strikers had been herded into bullpens and abominably treated by the soldiers. Note. Strikebreakers. These were, in purpose and practice and everything except name, the private soldiers of the capitalists. They were thoroughly organized and well-armed, and they were held in readiness to be hurled in special trains to any part of the country where labor went on strike or was locked out by the employers. Only those curious times could have given rise to the amazing spectacle of one, Farley, a notorious commander of strikebreakers who, in 1906, swept across the United States in special trains from New York to San Francisco with an army of 2,500 men, fully armed and equipped, to break a strike of the San Francisco streetcar men. 
Such an act was in direct violation of the laws of the land. The fact that this act and thousands of similar acts went unpunished goes to show how completely the judiciary was the creature of the plutocracy. Note. Bullpen. In a miners' strike in Idaho, in the latter part of the 19th century, it happened that many of the strikers were confined in a bullpen by the troops. The practice and the name continued in the 20th century. The years of prosperity were now to be paid for. All markets were glutted. All markets were falling. And amidst the general crumble of prices, the price of labor crumbled fastest of all. The land was convulsed with industrial dissensions. Labor was striking here, there, and everywhere. And where it was not striking, it was being turned out by the capitalists. The papers were filled with tales of violence and blood, and through it all the Black Hundreds played their part. Riot, arson, and wanton destruction of property was their function, and well they performed it. The whole regular army was in the field, called there by the actions of the Black Hundreds. Note, the name only, and not the idea, was imported from Russia. The Black Hundreds were a development out of the secret agents of the capitalists, and their use arose in the labor struggles of the 19th century. There is no discussion of this. No less an authority of the times than Carol D. Wright, United States Commissioner of Labor, is responsible for the statement. From his book entitled The Battles of Labor is quoted the declaration that in some of the great historic strikes the employers themselves have instigated acts of violence, that manufacturers have deliberately provoked strikes in order to get rid of surplus stock, and that freight cars have been burned by employers' agents during railroad strikes in order to increase disorder. It was out of these secret agents of the employers that the Black Hundreds arose. And it was they, in turn, that later became that terrible weapon of the oligarchy, the agent provocateur. Never had labor received such an all-round beating. The great captains of industry, the oligarchs, had for the first time thrown their full weight into the breach the struggling employers' associations had made. These associations were practically middle-class affairs, and now, compelled by hard times and crashing markets, and aided by the great captains of industry, they gave organized labor an awful and decisive defeat. It was an all-powerful alliance, but it was an alliance of the lion and the lamb, as the middle class was soon to learn. Labor was bloody and sullen, but crushed. Yet its defeat did not put an end to the hard times. The banks, themselves constituting one of the most important forces of the oligarchy, continued to call in credits. The Wall Street group turned the stock market into a maelstrom, where the values of all the land crumbled away almost to nothingness. And out of all the rack and ruin rose the form of the nascent oligarchy, imperturbable, indifferent, and sure. Its serenity and certitude was terrifying. Not only did it use its own vast power, but it used all the power of the United States Treasury to carry out its plans. Note, Wall Street. So named from a street in ancient New York, where was situated the stock exchange, and where the irrational organization of society permitted underhanded manipulation of all the industries of the country. The captains of industry had turned upon the middle class. The employers' associations that had helped the captains of industry to tear and rend labor were now torn and rent by their quondam allies. Amidst the crashing of the middlemen, the small businessmen and manufacturers, the trusts stood firm. Nay, the trusts did more than stand firm. They were active. They sowed wind and wind and ever more wind. For they alone knew how to reap the whirlwind and make a profit out of it. And such profits, colossal profits, strong enough themselves to weather the storm that was largely their own brewing, they turned loose and plundered the wrecks that floated about them. Values were pitifully and inconceivably shrunken, and the trusts added hugely to their holdings, even extending their enterprises into many new fields, and always at the expense of the middle class. Thus the summer of 1912 witnessed the virtual death thrust to the middle class, 
Even Ernest was astounded at the quickness with which it had been done. He shook his head ominously and looked forward without hope to the fall elections. "'It's no use,' he said. "'We are beaten. The Iron Heel is here. I had hoped for a peaceable victory at the ballot box. I was wrong. Wixon was right. We shall be robbed of our few remaining liberties. The Iron Heel will walk upon our faces. Nothing remains but a bloody revolution of the working class. Of course we will win.' But I shudder to think of it. And from then on, Ernest pinned his faith in revolution. In this, he was in advance of his party. His fellow socialists could not agree with him. They still insisted that victory could be gained through the elections. It was not that they were stunned. They were too cool-headed and courageous for that. They were merely incredulous. That was all. Ernest could not get them seriously to fear the coming of the oligarchy. They were stirred by him, but they were too sure of their own strength. There was no room in their theoretical social evolution for an oligarchy. Therefore, the oligarchy could not be. We'll send you to Congress, and it will be all right, they told him at one of our secret meetings. And when they take me out of Congress, Ernest replied coldly, and put me against the wall and blow my brains out, what then? Then we'll rise in our might, a dozen voices answered at once. Then you'll welter in your gore, was his retort. I've heard that song sung by the middle class, and where is it now in its might? End of chapter 10 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org